white Christmas Just like the ones I used to know Where the treetops glisten what makes an Oscar's acceptance speech memorable? Many times, the time limit plays directly into a moment's cultural longevity. From the swelling music meant to play the winner off, merely providing an epic soundtrack to a frenzied speech, to the controversy that comes when the mic is turned off completely. But these memorable moments might never exist if the time limit had never been implemented. At the 15th Academy Awards, no such restraints existed, and so, when Greer Garson got up to accept her Best Actress Oscar for her starring turn in the year's eventual Best Picture winner, Mrs. Miniver, she talked, and talked, and talked. For nearly six minutes, Garson went on talking and thanking presumably anyone she'd ever met. Shortly thereafter, awards officials decided to implement a 45-second time limit on acceptance speeches, a restriction that still holds, more or less, today. Hello and welcome to For Your Reconsideration, the podcast where we re-examine best picture races and determine if the Academy got it right. I'm Devin. And I'm Kyle. And on this week's episode, we are talking about the 15th Academy Awards held in 1943 to honor the best films in 1942, a ceremony hosted by Bob Hope. One and done host. Okay. That was a joke he hosted a lot. Yeah. So... Let's do a little context of what was going on in 1942 when these movies came out. So the president was FDR. On January 26th, uh, part of World War II, the first American forces arrived in Europe, landing in Northern Ireland. On February 2nd, President FDR signed an executive order directing the internment of Japanese Americans and the seizure of their property. It's fun times. And then on June 4th through the 7th was the Battle of Midway. The United States Navy defeated an Imperial Japanese Navy attack against Midway Atoll. So basically, World War II was going on in 1942. That's, uh, that's what was going on. You want to know what was going on that year in film? Sure. All right. On January 16th, actress Carol Lombard was killed in a plane crash west of Las Vegas while returning home to Los Angeles from a war bond tour. On June 4th, Mrs. Miniver opened at Radio City Music Hall in New York in what became a record-breaking 10-week run. And on November 26th, uh, the film Casablanca premiered at the Hollywood Theater in New York City. It was released nationally in the United States on January 23rd, 1943, and became one of the top grossing pictures of 1943 and went on to win Best Picture in 1944. Which is why we're not talking about it now, even though it technically did premiere in 1942. Just in case people were wondering, we'll talk about that next season. Okay. Some film debuts in 1942. Gene Kelly, Elizabeth Taylor, Peter Ustinov, and Tweety Bird. Hmm. Yeah. You want to know what the top 10 highest grossing films in 1942 were? I sure do. All right. Number 10, For Me and My Gal. Number 9, The Black Swan. Number 8, Wake Island. Number 7, Holiday Inn. Number six, Road to Morocco. Number five, Star Spangled Rhythm. Number four, Reap the Wild Wind. <laughs> number three, Random Harvest. Number two, Yankee Doodle Dandy. And number one, Best Picture winner, Mrs. Minifer. Nice. Yeah. I was wondering, like, on this list, like, where the Oscar nominees were. Yeah, at the top. Yeah, right. <laughs> two of them, anyway. 
But most of them aren't even on the top Most of them aren't on there, no. Uh, So, little fun facts about the ceremony. Uh, Mrs. Miniver was the second film after My Man Godfrey in 1936 to receive nominations in all four acting categories. And it was the first film to garner five acting nominations total. Also notable at the ceremony, Irving Berlin presented the Academy Award for Best Song, which he ended up winning himself for White Christmas. Nice. I think they would have planned that better. Usually they don't have people presenting an award that they're up for. (laughs) What if he didn't win? He was just like, well, it's me. They probably didn't have people checking back then. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, voting for the Best Documentary category resulted in a four-way tie, an outcome that has not happened before or since. Seems like a business move, honestly. But there also has never been 25 nominees (laughs) in that category before or since. Tell us why. Patri- patriotism or what um yeah i mean all the documentaries as far as i could tell were for the most part about the war i yeah. assume they were like i don't know great documentary on netflix called uh five came back right that was called yeah yeah about like the five awesome directors that went and shot propaganda films yeah so yeah that's it that's all i gotta say about everything awesome Want to talk about some movies that were nominated? Sure do. We got to be moving quick here because there were 10 nominees this year. They, I don't think they had any restrictions on how many nominees there were in any category because like there was 25 nominees for Best Documentary. I think there was like 10, 8. I think there was like 8 nominees for Best Song. There was like 6 nominees. There okay. was just like tons of nominees in every category. Yeah. So there's 10 nominees in this in Best Picture. Um, and we saw most of them. Unfortunately, there were two films that we were not able to see. Um, so I'm just going to run through those super quick just so we can like, you know, acknowledge them. But unfortunately, they're not really available anywhere. Yeah. And our library is not open, so we couldn't even see if they're there at the library. Okay. First up, The Pied Piper by Irving Pitchell, uh, produced by 20th Century Fox. Synopsis. While traveling in France during the Nazi invasion of 1940, an Englishman is entrusted with the care of a group of refugee children. The film was adapted by Nunnally Johnson from the novel of the same name by Neville Shute. So it has a Rotten Tomato audience score of 81% and a critic score of 100%, but that's only based on eight reviews. There's no critics consensus. Um, there's really no box office information. It was nominated for three Oscars, one zero, and it has not been named to any notable lists. Yeah. And it could just not even exist today. Yeah. Because we couldn't find it anywhere. No. Next up, movie that we did not watch, Wake Island by John Farrow, produced by Paramount. Synopsis. December 1941. With no hope of relief or resupply, a small band of United States Marines tries to keep the Japanese Navy from capturing their island base. It was written by W.R. Burnett and Frank Butler, and it was based on official Marine records, and a copy of the script by Burnett and Butler was sent to the Marines for approval prior to filming. Hmm. Bosley Crowther of the New York Times called it, quote, a film for which its makers deserve a sincere salute. Except for the use of fictional names and a very slight contrivance of plot, it might be a literal document of the manner in which the wake detachment of Marines fought and died in the finest tradition of their tough and indomitable corps. Um, so it has a Rotten Tomato audience score of 51%, critics score of 86%, no critics consensus. It made $3.5 million at the box office, nominated for four Oscars, one zero, no notable lists. And we can't find it. And it does not exist in 2020. Yeah. All right. So enough about that. You want to talk about movies we did watch? Yeah. Let's do it. Take a breath. 
<laughs> Should I go? Up first, Yankee Doodle Dandy, written by four writers whose names I did not write down, and uh, directed by Michael Curtiz, who also directed Casablanca, which won the following year. Mm-hmm. Spoiler alert. Produced uh, by Warner Brothers. Per- thank you. Uh, a film of the life of the renowned musical composer, playwright, actor, dancer, and singer, George M. Cohan. Logline. Get ready to laugh, to sing, to shout, for here comes Uncle Sam's star-spangled Yankee Doodle Dandy. Woo! (laughs) Exciting. Okay, so some fun facts about it. In his role as advisor to the film, George M. Cohan, who admired Fred Astaire's work, let it be known that he preferred Astaire, who also bore a passing resemblance to him, to star in his life story. Warner's offered the role to Astaire first, but Astaire turned it down because Cohen's eccentric, stiff-legged dancing was far removed from Astaire's own more fluid style. Hmm. James Cagney, who ended up playing Cohan, had initially been opposed to the biopic of George M. Cohen's life, having disliked Cohan since the actor's equity strike in 1919, in which he sided with the producers. In 1940, however, Cagney was named, along with 15 other Hollywood figures, in the grand jury testimony of John R. Leach, the self-described chief functionary of the Los Angeles Communist Party, who had been subpoenaed by the House Un-American Activities Committee. The New York Times printed the allegation that Cagney was a communist on its front page. Cagney refuted the accusation, and Martin Dyes Jr. made a statement to the press clearing Cagney. William Cagney, one of the film's producers, and James's brother, is reported to have said to his brother that, quote, we're going to have to make the goddamnest patriotic picture that's ever been made. <laughs> I think it's the Cohan story. Dang. That's, that's a really interesting story. I thought that was really interesting. Basically, he only did it to, like prove he wasn't a communist he's embarrassed that he was a communist <laughs> yeah i mean it was a bad to be a communist at that time no i know i know what i was saying is like was he not a communist though it's like james cagney yeah. i don't know <laughs> right i'm just saying what if he was and then he just made this and went against everything he stood for yeah putting that out there i feel like most of those people that got called out to be communists like just went to like a you know just like cool they were like liberal and they went to these yeah, little sure. hollywood parties and for suddenly sure. They're being blacklisted and shit. So, like, if only they knew it wasn't terrible to be a communist. <laughs> uh, so yeah, Yankee Doodle Dandy, song and dance show. Um, with yeah, patriotic songs, right? About a guy <laughs> who I mean, I've heard a lot of his songs before, but didn't know it was the same person. Mm-hmm. Um, really, kind of one note, if you ask me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Songwriting. <laughs> yeah, it's like I'm really surprised he made such a career. I'm like doing one thing. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, and then weird dance moves. But actually, I kind of enjoy the dancing more than anything else. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if Cohan could sing, but Cagney sure can't. Um, that was based on how Cohan sang. Apparently, that is okay. how he more talk sang. Okay. So that's okay. why Cagney did it that way. Okay. Okay. I see. Um, wow. Well, you can take liberties with things. I wish they would have just done that. <laughs> yeah, it was weird. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, the movie's the movie is uh, it's uh, if you're uh, if you're a Cohan fan, I'm sure it's good. Yeah, and we should say, in case people don't know, like the songs he's probably most known for is obviously Yankee Doodle Dandy, uh, Grand Old Flag, and Over There. Over There. there. Yes. So, um, yeah, I thought it was interesting. It's, you know, a musical. I thought it was definitely too long. There were things that could have been cut, like, and even, like, we heard some of the same songs, like, so many times, and I was like, we probably don't need, like, three different renditions of this Mary song as much as I, like... (laughs) I enjoyed like the first one and then they just like kept performing it. I was like, yeah. I wish that you would stop. Yeah. 
Um, so it was a little long. Definitely could have been cut down. But I do think it's cool, too. I was reading that some of the show, like, when they showed actual snippets of, like, his productions that he put on Broadway, those were, like, very close to the way that they were staged on Broadway at the time That's in the cool. early 1900s. So I do think it's cool to kind of have that. Obviously, back then, they weren't, like, recording stage productions. So it's kind of cool to, like, have that as a part of history to be like, this is what it would have been like if you were going to the theater in like 1912 or whatever so that's that's kind of neat actually i will say that um which honestly everything they did on stage was like it looked magnificent so that's kind of cool that it wasn't just a hollywood thing that's actually kind of what they were doing Mm -hmm. which is really neat yeah um but yeah overall just i mean I, i didn't have really any attachment to the story i didn't find it really interesting or even um no yeah i mean again i felt like it was a i felt like it was more of a way to make a quick buck reselling those singles in a time of war i mean yeah definitely well and i think that like a lot of these movies with some notable exceptions are very much came out in 1942 as a way to kind of like bolster people as they entered as america entered world war ii you know and so i mean like i think a lot of it is kind of propaganda and very like pro-america stuff obviously which like at that time that makes complete sense and i think that that's what this is um, I think James Cagney does a good job. It's there's a weird thing that was going on in 1942 where they like didn't care how old a person was. They were going to play a teenager regardless. Like yeah. James Cagney plays his character from the time that he's like 17 until he's like an old man, but like yeah. he's old the entire time. So just like Yeah. Although I think part of it too like when we saw the one there was like a still of the I don't know if it was that one or the other one, but there was like a still from the movie that was like unrestored. And then obviously when we were watching the movie, it was the restored version. So I think maybe like unrestored, maybe he was more passably young, but in the restored version, he was very much not. So, like, well, yeah, but I mean, at the same time, like they would have seen a pretty decent quality cut back in the day, you know, that's true. Like sure. On home video may not have been that great, but in yeah. theaters, he should have been like, huh? Okay. Yeah. And it also is another a movie that a lot of these other movies, a theme of, uh, him being like a middle-aged man and then his love interest being played by a literal like teenage girl which was yeah that was <laughs> unnecessary yeah. but was i thought the actually i thought the old age makeup from back in the day is great but yeah. making people look younger was not really a thing no they hadn't figured that out yet because there's an example where he plays an older character in it and i thought that makeup was fantastic yeah that looked good well and the the lady who played his mom was wearing much older makeup old age makeup because in reality she was 11 years younger Whoa, than james cagney wow yeah. Okay, that's pretty cool. So, yeah, I think the old age makeup was good, but I had trouble buying him as a 17-year-old for a large portion of it. Yeah. I find it, honestly, pretty crazy, too, that, like, this was directed by Michael Curtiz, and then, mm-hmm. like, he does Casablanca after this. It's just, like, two polar opposite type of movies, really. Yeah, I feel like, I mean, like, this, I think, was, what, like, the second highest grossing film of the year. So, I feel like those are the movie that he was like, oh, I'm going to make my money, and then I'll make something good later. Yeah. <laughs> Which, I mean, Casablanca did really well as well, but, like... Sure. Yeah. All right. All right, you want to know some some stats about it? Yankee Doodle Dandy has a Rotten Tomatoes audience score of 83% and a critic score of 93%. The critic's consensus reads, James Cagney deploys his musical gifts to galvanizing effect in Yankee Doodle Dandy, a celebration of patriotic fervor as much as it is a biopic of George M. Cohan. At the box office, it made $6.5 million. It was nominated for eight Oscars and won four. It won for Best Actor for James Cagney, Best Scoring of a Musical, Best Music, and Best Sound Recording. As far as its legacy, the American Film Institute, on their original list of the 100 Greatest Films, it ranked at number 100. On the anniversary list, it moved up to number 98. 
On their list of 100 songs, Yankee Doodle Boy is ranked at 71. And on their list of the 100 greatest quotes, um, it ranks at number 97 with my mother thanks you, my father thanks you, my sister thanks you, and I thank you. Yeah. And on their list of 100 musicals, it ranked at number 18. Oh, and then their list of 100 Cheers, which is like inspirational movies, it ranked number 88. Okay. We're going to be talking about that 100 Cheers list a lot this episode. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. <laughs> yeah. All right. Next up, The Talk of the Town. Uh, Talk of the Town, directed by George Stevens. When the Holmes Woolen Mill burns down, political activist Leopold Dilge is jailed for arson and murder. One man was lost. Escaping, Leopold hides out in the home of his childhood sweetheart, Nora Shelley, sorry, which she has just rented to unsuspecting law professor Michael Lightcap. Screen comedy so gay, drama so thrilling, love so exciting, it will be the talk of your town. That's a good long line. Yeah. There's some fun ones from the 40s, let me tell you. Oh, I bet. All right, some facts. So it was produced by Columbia Pictures. The screenplay was adapted by Dale Van Every, Erwin Shaw, and Sidney Buckman from a story by Sidney Harmon. Buckman was blacklisted in the 1950s, and consequently, um, Buckman, who also wrote Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, left the U.S. and began working in Fox's European division, and he would remain in France until his death in 1975. The talk of the town began with the working title Mr. Twilight, but Cary Grant insisted it be changed, suspecting that if the movie appeared to be about a single male character, Coleman, who had the better role, would steal the show. Principal photography, originally scheduled to begin January 17, 1942, was delayed when the news of the death of Carol Lombard uh, came through. The director had previously worked with her like the year before. Um, at the time, it was unusual for a film to have two leading men. At this point in both their careers, Grant and Coleman had been used have been used to having that role all to themselves. And the situation is reflected in the plot since audiences are kept guessing until the end who Arthur's character would choose to marry. Stevens films both versions, leaving it to a test screening to determine the ending. Which I thought was interesting because like when I was watching it, I was like, clearly she's going to pick Cary Grant. I don't know who this Richard Coleman guy is. So like, obviously she's going to end up with Cary Grant. But I guess Richard Coleman was a big enough star in 1942 that people would be confused as to who she was going to pick. That's crazy to me. Yeah, I don't know because I still think anyone would pick Cary Grant. Yeah. But yeah. <laughs> Is that all your facts? Yeah, those are all my facts. Oh, okay. You want to talk about it? Yeah, I really enjoyed it. I think that, you know, um, looking at... I feel like when we go back, the, like, the further we go back, the, har- the harder it is to kind of look at it through a modern lens just because I think that filmmaking was so different in the 30s and 40s as it is today and they were just like after different things really but i think when we do watch them i think comedies tend to hold up better because i think what's funny is funny no matter what decade you're in and personally i am a fan of the screwball comedy which this is definitely um an entry for so i enjoyed it i thought it was funny uh jean arthur plays the the female lead is like magic she's hysterical she's really great she does physical Stand comedy. Out. She does like she yeah, she's yeah. she steals the movie, honestly. A hundred percent. And uh and I liked it. I thought that it had um it was an because it was kind of had screwball comedy aspects, but there also was some some drama. There was some, I guess, like intellectual discourse on law. <laughs> if you were into that. But um overall I really, really enjoyed watching this movie. I I I uh 
I can enjoy some of the screwball aspects for sure. Overall, it was kind of a miss for me, though. Um, really? Yeah. Oh. Like, I love the character of Nora Shelley, and the actress did a, f- a fine job, like you said. But, I mean, I don't know. It just didn't do it for me. It was like, it was like a, there was, there was so much exposition for, like, the setup. Yeah. They're just, I don't know. I was immediately taken out. And also, like, the writers are uh, insane for naming him Leopold Dilge. <laughs> it is funny. Gary Cooper as Leopold Dilge. Cary Grant. Oh, sorry, yeah. <laughs> Cary Grant <laughs> as Leopold Dilge. It's just like, ugh. Let's left me with a bad taste in my mouth immediately. I know that's like that's so nitpicky or whatever, but um, one of the craziest aspects is the the, the subplot of uh, Lightfoot's... Lightcaps. Lightcaps. <laughs> <laughs> Terrible. I have this written down, too. Of uh, Lightcaps' uh, Beard. beard. Oh, yeah, which is his beard is like a huge plot point of this movie. Yeah, and then like he shaves it, and like they're supposed to look like younger, but he actually looks even far older. He looks so much older when he shaves his beard. And also when he shaves it, his man, which they refer to mm-hmm. as his man, who is a black man, mm-hmm. and although they are very friendly, he cries. There's a close up. See, of I was him getting like tearing up. My interpretation of this whole thing is that they were lovers. I mean. Honestly, when he first said, like, my man is blah, 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 I, I like, was like, whoa. <laughs> but then I was like, there's no way. Like, no. I don't care how much you hide it. But, I mean, again, they were very friendly. I just don't know why this. Well, and he said, because he was talking, he, like, was asking him for, Light Camp was asking yeah. him for, like, advice on women. And he's like, how yeah. would I know? Because I've spent my whole life with you. Right. And I was like, okay. <laughs> and, and it might be, like, buried so deep for yeah. sure. But then it doesn't really make sense for Lightfoot to be, sorry, Light, Light Cap. <laughs> Uh, like cap to be uh, where am I getting Lightfoot from? I don't know. Okay, anyway, because the mayor of Chicago. I don't know. <laughs> mm, probably. Um, but yeah, yeah, but that was crazy. Uh, I will say, I was when I was looking up research, they were talking about how like for the time that character for a black actor was supposed to be like very progressive because he was like. I mean, I can see that when comparing it to other movies. Compared to other time, movies on sure. this list, for sure, he had like full lines of dialogue yeah. and like, yeah no absolutely and he was you know he wasn't the uh is there a is there a male term for like a mammy type of character yeah like, i don't know i don't know but like, like step and fetch it or whatever i guess but he wasn't okay. like that no, no 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 so but i mean again still a long way to go but i yeah cer- i certainly see that it's maybe progressive for movies in that era I think it's super progressive that they were lovers. So yeah. <laughs> I'm choosing to read it that way. <laughs> I mean, again, it makes sense. Like, I don't know. Is it based on a book you said? Is that, yeah, it is. So book? maybe that stuff got through in books a lot better than movies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, like, we'll never pass the Hayes Code with this. Let's make it a love triangle. Yeah. That's, that's yeah. Really, there's no competition in the book. <laughs> no, they're like, obviously she goes with Cary Grant. Yeah. <laughs> Duh. <laughs> uh, right. but, but yeah, I mean, again, movies a miss for me. Oh, see, this was like my Bryce. I was like, this is like an undiscovered gem because I feel like it's not it's not a movie that gets talked about. But I found it really like funny and entertaining. Hmm. If you like screwball comedies, I'm saying check it out. It's a talk of your town, but not mine. (laughs) Well, let's see what other people think. Uh, It has a Rotten Tomatoes audience score of 84 percent and a critics score of 94 percent. But it has no critics consensus. The box office made one point one million. It was nominated for seven Oscars and won zero. And it has not been named to any notable lists. Hmm. Go figure. I know it's forgotten. Right. What's up next? 
Next up, we are talking about Random Harvest. Random Harvest. Um, written by the same team as Miss Miniver, which will come up later in our podcast, and directed by Mervyn Leroy. An amnesiac World War I vet falls in love with a music hall star, only to suffer an accident which restores his original memories, but erases his post-war life. He had found love, lost it, and now had found it again. Random Harvest. It's <laughs> not the best log line. <laughs> uh, you know, you really can. Not everyone's a hit. Uh, yeah, so the the film was based on the novel by James Hilton. Uh, Greer Garson, who starred in it, was well-received, but was ineligible for an Academy Award for Best Actress because she was already nominated that year for her role in Mrs. Miniver, which she won. The better role. Really? Yeah. Oh. I thought her performance in Random Harvest was actually like much better than I her I think we're going to be buttonheads this whole podcast. Wow. All right. So Just in like the- in life. <laughs> In the novel, the novel keeps the true identity of Paula slash Margaret a secret until the very end, something that would have been impossible in a film. And that meant that the movie had to take a very different approach to the story. Which I think is really interesting. I can't imagine, like, reading a book and then at the very end you find out that, like, one character has been, like, the same character the whole time. Although I will say, I, like, these are spoilers, I guess, for Random Harvest. But, like, when she... No one's going to watch it. What does it matter? When she, like, came out and was his secretary after he had, like, regained his memories... The first time. Yeah, that was... I was like... That was... What? <laughs> that was quite the shocker. It was. It was. Uh, and also, this starred Richard Coleman as well, because he was such a big star. Yeah. So. Both of these guys had a pretty pretty positive year. Yeah, they were working. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, I found it like a really interesting setup uh, with the asylum, the amnesia. Um, although, it didn't make any sense for Greer Garson to be so open to bringing um, <laughs> Charles Rainier into her life. This uh, man who escaped I, from I thought, an asylum. Yeah, like I thought that might have been like part of a twist. Is like, yeah, she was trying, but it wasn't. So like, it made no sense for her to be so like open armed about bringing him in. People fall in love quick shocking. in movies like, from the forties. <laughs> I was thinking like she's the one that needs to be in the asylum, not him. Yeah, but. Um, yeah, I mean, I like this movie was, for lack of a better term, it was nice. Like, I just remember yeah. the ending and it was, like, nice. And I kind of liked a lot of the things it did uh, with the amnesia stuff and, like, her coming back, obviously, into his life. And then they have this, like, marriage where they're just friendly because they are such good friends. They work really well together. Um, I kind of liked that. I just didn't really see that very often. Yeah. Um, but... Yeah, I mean, overall, the feeling just left me with... I mean, it left me with a smile, but I don't know if I, like, truly enjoyed it. Yeah. I do think it's, like, it's a nice little romance story with a lot of... There's a lot of contrivances, obviously. Like, amnesia is a pretty... <laughs> amnesia coming and going is, like, yeah, very... very convenient. Very movie-ish, <laughs> but, like... I thought it was... I thought it was, you know, entertaining. It was a nice love story. I think Greer Garson did give, like, a really great performance. Yeah, I do agree. Because she has... She had a lot... Because, I mean, she knows the entire time, like, who he... Like, after he yeah. forgets her. So, like... Have we seen her in anything else until this point? I don't think so. I hope to see her in a lot more. Yeah, she was really no good. I have no idea about her, but... Very, very good. So yeah, I liked it. I enjoyed it. Like you said, it was nice. It was like... Oh. It was nice. Yeah. Like a lot of movies from this era. Yes. Yes. You know. They churned them out. They just wanted to be feel-good pictures. Yeah. Which I feel like... I mean, and that's why I say like it's hard to like... I just feel like when we're looking at movies from this time, you can't really like hold them to the same standard as like later no, movies because no. they weren't trying to make art with these movies. They were literally just trying to like make. Right. I do my best to try to you know, yeah. keep that focus. Like I'm not comparing this to like 
taxi. I don't know why it's the taxi driver, but <laughs> yeah. Uh, or even taxi with Jimmy Kim or Jimmy Fallon and Queen, Queen Latifah. Latifah. I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't really compare. No, that's art. This is movies. <laughs> this is factory movies, baby. <laughs> yeah. All right. So tell me about Random Harvest. Okay. Well, it has a Rotten Tomatoes audience score of 89% and a critic score of 89%, but no critics consensus. Um, it made $8.14 million worldwide, nominated for seven Oscars, one zero. And as far as its legacy, the American Film Institute, on their list of 100 Greatest Passions, listed it at number 36. Oh, interesting. Okay. I do think it's a nice little love story. It's very like, though, what's the movie, like, An Affair to Remember, which I have not seen, but I'm pretty sure that also deals with amnesia. Why are you bringing this up? You know, I haven't seen it either. What, what are we going to add to this? I'm just saying that's probably like a better version. You let us probably know. Probably a better version? Why would you assume that? Well, because people like love An Affair to Remember and I've literally never heard anyone talk well, about Random an Affair to Remember? I feel like I've never heard of An Affair to Remember. Well, I don't know. It sounds scandalous. I think someone has amnesia. Okay. There's no way to know. What are we basing this on? No, I don't is, know. Is that the one where they go to the top of the... Yeah. Oh, okay. From... um. Sleepless in Seattle. Yeah, I think Sleepless in Seattle is like an homage to Fair to Remember. Yeah, no, well, I mean, they, they reference the movie in there. Yeah. Okay, but anyway, what's next? Next up, we are talking about The Pride of the Yankees. The Pride of the Yankees. An RKO radio picture. Yeah. Uh, one of the writers on this film is uh, Herman Mankiewicz, who uh, won the year before for Citizen Kane with Orson Welles, although that's a scandalous story in itself. So oh, Mankiewicz really was the it. original, right? But they can't, then they said like, it's kind of, yeah, it's kind of a scandalous story. Like people are saying, of course, like Orson Welles certainly like changed a few things and made it his own, but it's like mostly Mankiewicz all over that. Okay. Which I find very interesting. Also, I think there's a movie coming out later this year directed by uh, Fincher about Mankiewicz called Mank. Oh, cool. Which I find really, really interesting. Severe alcoholic though, I guess. Who wasn't? Who wasn't back in the day? Okay, anyway. Also directed by Sam Wood, who will come up again in this mm-hmm. podcast. Sam Wood come up again. <laughs> that was a great joke. Thanks. <laughs> uh, I love dad jokes. Uh, the story and life of... Wait. The story of the life and career of the baseball Hall of Famer, Lou Gehrig. Intimate and thrilling drama of a hero of the headlines. The girl who had his love and shared his life, but dared not question his one secret. That makes it sound much more scandalous. Yeah, it than does. It and everybody kind of knew what was happening, so I don't really understand how that plays into it. But yeah, everyone into that movie knowing how it was going to end. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but yeah, it's probably the Yankees, baby. All righty. Uh, so prior to the Yankees, Yankee teammates Babe Ruth, Bob Musel, Mark Cohen, and Bill Dickey all play themselves in the film, as does sportscaster Bill Stern. Uh, Babe Ruth's health had been declining steadily since his retirement in 1935, and by 1942, he he weighed nearly 270 pounds. He was put on a strict diet to achieve a presentable weight before filming began. Did he only eat straw hats? (laughs) This rapid weight loss on the heels of a heart attack followed by a car accident combined with the tough shooting schedule and Ruth's propensity to keep late hours weakened him significantly. By the time filming wrapped, he had developed pneumonia severe enough to require a period of hospitalization. This movie nearly killed Babe Ruth. <laughs> that's, what I'm, that's what I'm learning. Uh, Lou Gehrig died only one year before the film's release at age 37 from ALS, which later became known to the general public as Lou Gehrig's disease. I would feel like he, more like he died of Lou Gehrig's disease, which later became known to the public as ALS. <laughs> I mean, I would it was already known as ALS to people. Oh, was it? To doctors. Okay, I thought it was relatively new. That's why I thought it was called Lou Gehrig's disease. Well, I think Lou Gehrig was just like a very prominent person that died from it, and so that's when... 
the general public found out about it. It's a very rare Honestly, disease. Honestly, no one calls it Lou Gehrig's disease anymore. You know what I'm saying? No, because many other people have had it since yeah, Lou Gehrig. That's true. Like, fam- you know what I mean? I just think Lou Gehrig, I think other people had it before Lou Gehrig. How old was he when he? He was 37 when he died. Damn. So, yeah. What do you think about Pride of the Yankees? Uh, you know, I actually thought it was pretty well done. Um, it was interesting because it felt it felt quick. It didn't. It wasn't like it wasn't like overly dramatic. It was actually just kind of more of a celebration of the life of Lou Gehrig. Yeah. Which I see. I feel like in a lot of biopics, like it would be mostly about the drama and the bad shit. Mm-hmm. Um, which I mean, at this time, they I'm sure Hollywood wasn't trying to do that kind of thing. No. Uh, because there there might be more drama in Lou Gehrig's life. I have no idea. Uh, but they make him seem like a real standout guy in this mm-hmm. movie. Um, so again, just kind of one of those uh nice pictures. Um. Yeah, it felt quick paced. It was kind of funny. It was interesting to an extent. Yeah. Um, but you really kind of knew what was going to happen. Um, and it ends ends quite abruptly. He gives the infamous speech oh, and such we're a out. strong ending though. That speech is No, so I agree. Good. It's like how are you going to come back and what else are you going to do from there? But like besides again, show the drama, which they do neglect to do in this movie. So yeah. it's like it's weird cuz it takes away from his death in a way that it doesn't really show you know how this guy it would have been like crazy for them to show all the positive that this guy is and then all like the negative stuff like it like a total tonal shift mm-hmm. but you know they weren't trying to do that back then so no especially think, based on somebody who just so recently yeah died. he had just died and like with well this isn't like a propaganda film the same way that a lot of these other ones are i do feel like it does have those kind of same tropes where it's very much about this guy who's just a hard-working stand-up guy who just want to play baseball america's pastime and like yeah you know what i mean so i think it does have those undertones as well i did read somewhere like the ending they wanted the producers or whatever like wanted it to end more uplifting where it just like ended on the speech and people cheering and blah blah and the director was sam wood was very adamant that he wanted the shot of him walking into the dugout and like which i think is a really cool closing shot oh for sure because he was like, well, this guy died. Like, everyone knows that he died, so it's not really, like... Right. Yeah, I think it's an interesting choice, again, not to kind of show the aftermath. Mm-hmm. But it's, like, also, I don't know. Well, and also, I don't think people... I'm sure they didn't really know, because he was very secretive. Like, I don't think people knew what he died of until he had died. Like, I think he kept it from the public. Wow, yeah. And so, I'm sure, at that time, they didn't really know how bad it had gotten. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. So... I don't know. I thought it was really good. I thought uh, Gary Cooper gave a pretty good performance. Again, they were making him play a teenager for part of it, which was not believable. But um, for the most part, I thought he was good. Teresa White as his um, Teresa Wright as his wife was also very good. Um, and it's I mean, it's basically like a love story more than anything else. It's about the yeah, two of them. And then I did think it was kind of like I thought it became and pleasing your mother and parents. Yeah, there's yeah. some weird mom stuff in there, but um, <laughs> not as weird as Miss Miniver. <laughs> but uh. It was interesting. Like, I did think it got, like, it was kind of, like, like okay, I get it. They're, like, a new couple. And, like, there wasn't really any, like, conflict to their marriage. So it was just these two lovely people being in love for, like, an yeah. hour and a half. And then, like, 20 minutes of him falling over and unable to, like, use his hands. And then it ended. So I did feel like it was a little, like, lopsided in that way. Sure. You know I, what I mean? I agree. I agree. But... I don't know. It was entertaining. Yeah. Really? And I actually, like, I was kind of drawn in at the very beginning. Like, I love the scene of him as a child. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the kids aren't letting him play baseball. And then he finally, one kid gets called home so he gets, he gets to step up for him. And he hits the ball and it goes out of the, their little park and breaks a window. And I just thought, like, that was honestly, like, such a good opening. I was so, I was drawn in immediately. Yeah. Um, I really liked some of the touches like that. But overall, yeah, again, um, 
I liked it's fast paced. However, a lot of people might find that, you know, the it's again, it's missing something, right? It's just, it's going over everything. So yeah, you know, breezing by it, but yeah, well, yeah, it's just, they spent so much time on his relationship with his wife and then like so little time on his illness Yeah, that it was just like, which I, I mean, they don't want to focus on it, but I'm like, but that's also like the point of why you're making it. So yeah, no, for sure. Um, I also really love, uh, his manager or whatever, Sam Blake, played by Walter Brennan. Oh, yeah. Just has, like, he the best good. voice in the business. Like, yes. I, I want to do an impression of it, but I don't even think I could do it justice. <laughs> but he was also with uh, Gary Cooper in the film from the previous year, right? Um, oh. Uh, what was that called? Where he went and he's like a Yeah. Qu- yeah, he chose Sergeant York. Sergeant York, thank you. But, yeah, just, he just he got it. <laughs> he's like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's my impression uh, that's your Walter Brennan impression yeah yeah it is okay anyway that's terrible yeah that was bad but that I was really, really like, bad at impressions I, I am I am but I really did appreciate uh, his his little role in this I think he he just brings some like levity to the situation and grounds the movie as well so mm-hmm. great supporting actor um, Walter Brennan there yes alrighty so Pride of the Yankees has a Rotten Tomatoes audience score of 89%, a critic score of 93%, and the critic's consensus reads, The equally tragic and heroic story of Yankees first baseman Lou Gehrig is eloquently told here with an iconic star turn by Gary Cooper. The box office made $8.8 million. It was nominated for 11 Oscars and won one for editing. As far as its legacy, the American Film Institute on their list of 100 cheers, it ranked number 22. On their 10 top 10 list, it ranked as the number three sports movie. Hmm. On their list of greatest heroes, Gary came in at number 25. And on their list of 100 greatest lines, uh, it ranked at number 38 with today, I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. Yeah. Which I feel like, like, yeah, it's a line in this movie, but it's also like just what Lou Gehrig yeah, said. Yeah, it's so, like the writer shouldn't be credited <laughs> Yeah, you shouldn't get much. it. Which, because I mean, and that speech that he gives at the end is like pretty almost verbatim. Like what he said, they just kind of like move some stuff around to make it a little bit more dramatically interesting okay i don't know i found that scene like i'd already like i've seen that scene before obviously but i still found it like so effective oh for sure i absolutely did too it like made the whole rest of the movie worth it really all right on a different note let's talk about the magnificent ambersons uh written by orson wells based on a book by sam tuckerton it might not be sam tuckerton i just wrote tuckerton it's booth tarkington oh Way off. (laughs) Okay. And directed by Orson Welles. The spoiled young heir to the decaying Amberson fortune comes between his widowed mother and the man she has always loved. Real life screened more daringly than it's ever been before. Oh, is that it? Yeah, that's it. (laughs) Yep. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Even like the logline writer was like, I don't know what to say about this guy. It's real. (laughs) I I, I like that. Yeah. I think that comes up in another logline later, but. The real life is kind of interesting because I feel like this is a far more dramatic piece than than we see a lot from this era. Yeah. Well, I got some facts about that. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Here we go. (laughs) Can you read it like this, please? I can't. Okay. Uh, So Wells' original cut previewed shortly after Pearl Harbor, and the audience expressed disinterest in the somber, dark film. Ah. Wells had given up Final Cut rights in a negotiation for another film, which he never ended up making. So when he flew to Brazil to shoot his next film, RKO handed the editing over to Robert Weiss. They cut more than an hour of the film and reshot several scenes, including the ending. 
The final cut featured a much happier ending than Wells's version, but it was closer to the ending of the novel. The original footage was destroyed to make space in later years, and all other cuts of Wells's version are considered lost. Los Angeles Times critic Kevin Thomas argued, quote, although reams have been written about the mutilation of Orson Welles' second feature, what remains is re- what remains of it is nevertheless a major accomplishment. Um, composer Bernard Herrmann insisted his credit be removed when, like the film itself, his score was heavily edited by the studio. Okay. So, yeah, so basically, like, this movie is very dark. Not a, not an uplifting, happy propaganda film for 1942. And so I think the studio just got scared that no one was going to go see it. So they cut it all up. Yeah. Led to a whole bunch of drama between Orson Welles and Robert Weiss and whoever else in RKO. So. Yeah, I have some thoughts on that. I don't think, I don't think however Orson ended the movie, I would have liked it any better. Um I read how it ended Person. and I liked it a lot more than how it ended. Really? <laughs> yeah. Okay. I just, you know, I couldn't get, I honestly couldn't get into, are we, are you done talking? I'm yeah. sorry. I couldn't get into the Magnificent Ambersons purely based on, um, and you'll notice this is kind of a trend with me, but if there's like an unappealing lead, I can't do it. Like I, I can't get drawn in. I found Eugene Morgan uh, played by Joseph Cotton so uninteresting or even just like irritating that I could not be drawn to the story or give a shit about this family. Yeah. Like I couldn't, I'm sorry. Like, but I think, I don't think I, you were supposed to like, him. no. And I get that. And I do understand. I totally understand. Yeah. That. But like, you always, you have an issue with unlikable leads. I do. I, I can't, I was so, even just the way they like spoke. And I don't even mean that in like some kind of like, I'm an uneducated. I need you to talk American, please. Like, I don't mean it like that. It's just, I found it. Just hard to get into. Yeah. It's Un- not very accessible. Uninteresting. No. I mean, and again, maybe it's a really good adaptation of the book, at least the first half or whatever it is. I don't care. That's fine. Mm-hmm. But I just found the story just, I don't like the way this guy treated people. I didn't care about his love story because I didn't care about him. Like, I honestly just felt bad. Like, the person or just disagreed with her attract- attraction to him. Yeah. Like, her liking him made no sense whatsoever. Yeah. Like, so it's just like the choices made. And I don't know how much of it is Joseph Cotton, how much of it is Orson Welles the choices made couldn't add up to me. Like I didn't, I couldn't appreciate it. I couldn't get into it. I always felt, I always felt distanced from this movie. Like I, mm-hmm. um, in a way that made it very unappealing to me. And I don't know how a different last act could have helped. Well, for me, I just think the ending, like his original ending, which was a lot darker and a lot, it was a lot darker, but I think that that would have just felt more tonally appropriate because the whole film is dark and it's basically about, um, whatever his name is, Joseph Cotton's character. Eugene. Being, yeah, Eugene being like a holy terror in this city forever and then destroying his own family and his own life. And so to have him, to have it end with him being in like complete despair and his aunt being insane and what which is what Orson Welles' ending was. I think would have been more tonally fitting for the rest of the film than to suddenly have this like sharp left turn into like him getting his love interest back and like everything being okay. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't say even it totally if that is how ends happy. Well, no, he's, he's like in a hospital cause they're hit by a car. Yeah. And like, it's not really showing that like things are going to be better. I, I understand it gives like a thread of hope. Yeah. But I mean, again, like I don't care. Like, for just just for me, the f- the first two acts aren't enough mm-hmm. to make whatever the third act would have been or is now 
make it a better movie. I don't I don't know. I can't I can't recommend the first half. Sure. I do think like it's kind of interesting too, like a little like mini theme going on here because I think this film and then um King's Row too kind of is a lot about people about the world changing and people like being unable to accept those changes and like mm-hmm. how that affects people. So just and I think that I mean Magnificent Amberson is a lot like the, like the Eugene character is very anti cars and very like anti like they're the Ambersons are like this you know old family old of money, wealth and yeah. you know it's about those people losing their power and yeah the people gaining it changing which, of the guard with the rich and elite yeah which I do think is interesting um. I don't know. I wouldn't like ever watch this movie again. I don't because it's not fun. But um, I think it did some interesting things. I think Agnes Moorhead as his aunt gives a really good oh, performance. Absolutely. Honestly, she stole every scene she was in. Yeah. I did appreciate her. I really love some of the photography. Thought mm-hmm. Some of it was incredible. They went dark when when it wasn't cool to go dark yet on everything. Like, yeah. I really appreciated that. Right. That didn't come up for another 30 years. But I really, yeah, I really appreciate some of that stuff. I think Orson Welles often brings really cool ideas. I just, I think he had um, too much almost freedom. Yeah. To make, you know, I, I don't know if this movie was ready to be made. Truly. I don't know. I, that's what I kind of feel. I kind of feel like it was, it wasn't handled the best. Yeah. But I don't really know the source material either, so I can't really say. But I don't know. It just felt kind of like a, a, a lackluster sophomore effort from Orson Welles. Yeah, a little bit of a sophomore slump. Yeah. Anyway. Oh, well. It has a Rotten Tomatoes audience score of 85% and a critic score of 90%. The critic's consensus reads, Assembled with bold visual craft and penetrating insight, The Magnificent Ambersons further establishes writer-director Orson Welles as a generational talent. I mean, I do think Orson Welles was very talented. Yeah, can't argue with that. Um, I wish he would have been in it. Well, his voice is in it. He's the narrator. <laughs> Thank you, Devin. He's got a good voice. That's why I started on radio. Yeah. Okay. They also like did it as a radio play, I think, at some point okay. too after this. Oh, one thing I was gonna say too is something you point out that you really liked was he narrated the credits at the end, which oh, was yeah, kinda, and it was which the was really first film cool. that did that too. Yeah. Oh, are there other films that did it? I think other films did it after that, but that okay. was the first one that did it. Okay. Like literally like their names don't even come up. It's just the, their picture. Yeah. And him reading their names. Which I liked. Yeah, I thought it was really cool. He said, like, for him, he wasn't, like, trying. He's, like, that's just how we did it for our radio shows. So, like, that's just how I wanted to do it. Yeah, cool. So. Um, and the box made $1 million, um, but it still lost $620,000. Yeah, okay. So, not not a not a success. Again, like, in 1942, when the country's at war, like, no one's going to see this movie about right, right. <laughs> sadness. So No, yeah. It came out at a bad time. It did. But I saw some things, like, comparing, like, it might be his masterpiece on par with Citizen Kane. No untrue yeah it's i they don't do think it's not compare close to citizen kane yeah. really um it was nominated for four oscars at one zero as far as its legacy on sight and sounds top 250 films of all time it was ranked to number 81 and it was selected for preservation in the united states national film registry in 1991 cool next up talking about sam wood again king's row King's Row. This is a long synopsis, so I apologize. As as Devin said, it's well, by Sam Wood. Yeah. Uh, five children in an apparently ideal American small town find their lives changing as years pass near the turn of the century in 1900. Paris and Drake, both of whom lo- have lost their parents, are best friends. 
Paris dreams of becoming a doctor, studying under the father of his sweetheart, Cassie, while Drake plans on becoming a local businessman when he receives his full inheritance, juggling girlfriends in the meantime. As they become adults, their revelations of local secrets threaten to ruin their hopes and dreams. The town they talk of in whispers. That's a... Uh, <laughs> They could have done a better job with that. They could have tried one, but, with that. Yeah. I'm yeah. sure the, the log line person was like, this movie is so insane. I don't even know what I could tell you about it in a <laughs> log line. Well, I got lots of facts for you. So it's based on the best-selling 1940 novel of the same name by Henry Bellaman. Um, and I don't know if you mentioned this in your thing, but uh, Ronald Reagan is one of the stars of this film. And in the film, Reagan's character, Drake McHugh, has both legs amputated by a sadistic surgeon. When he comes to following the operations, he gasps in shock, disbelief, and horror. Where's the rest of me? Reagan used that line as the title of his 1965 autobiography. Reagan and most film critics consider King's Row his best film, and Reagan called the film, quote, a slightly sordid but moving yarn that made me a star. I just think it's crazy that his autobiography is called Where's the Rest of Me? Okay. Anyway. <laughs> well, he was suffering from dementia wasn't it <laughs> not, not 1965 hopefully oh, okay, that's true. um a film adaptation of bellman's controversial novel modeled on his hometown of fulton missouri presented significant problems for movie industry censors who sought to bring the film into conformity with the hayes code joseph breen who is the director of the production code authority which administered the hayes code said that any screenplay no matter how well done would likely bring condemnation of the film industry quote from decent people everywhere because of quote the fact that it stems from so thoroughly questionable a novel end quote he said that the script was being referred to a super his superior will hayes for a decision to the acceptability of any production based upon the novel breen said that his office would approve the film if all references to incest nymphomania euthanasia mm. and homosexuality which had been mm. suggested in the novel be removed all references to nude bathing were to be eliminated and quote the suggestion of sex affair between randy and drake will be eliminated entirely it was agreed that dr tower would know about the affair between cassandra and paris and that this has something to do with his killing the girl after several drafts were rejected robinson was able to satisfy breen if you haven't seen the movie, I don't blame you for not being able to follow any of that, okay? Yeah. I mean, that's... Okay. Anyway, last final fact. You could have just mentioned there's... Oh, yeah, there's like incest and stuff. Not in the movie. That was a lot to follow if you've not seen this movie. Was it? Yeah. I'm sorry. Okay. If anyone has questions, let me know. Okay. Uh, the film's musical score by Eric Wolfgang Korngold was so popular with the public that the Warner Brothers music department drafted a form letter response to queries concerning recordings of sheet music. At the time, film scores for movie dramas were not published or recorded for commercial distribution. King's Row is considered one of the composer's more notable compositions. The original orchestral score was requested by the White House for the inauguration of President Reagan. And prolific film composer John Williams drew inspiration from the film soundtrack for his famous Star Wars opening theme. Yeah, apparently this is a pretty well-known thing, but I just didn't know until seeing this movie. You clocked it like a. It is like <laughs> insane how much it sounds like Star Wars. Yeah, it's it does insane. Sound like Star Wars. Like I think notes change like after the sixth or seventh one. It's just it's it's insane. It's yeah. so accurate. Um. Yeah. Is that it? Yeah. Okay. I actually really enjoyed this one. <laughs> 
Yeah, I don't know if I enjoyed it the way they wanted me to enjoy it. No. Though. <laughs> it was just so melodramatic. This is the and like the insane mo- like melodrama on steroids yes. is what this movie. I is. cannot believe something like this came out this time. Yeah, well, that's why I thought too. Like when they're talking about what they had to change for the Hays Code, and they were like, "Oh, like the sexual relationship between Randy and Drake is just gone." I'm like, "Ah, uh, no, it wasn't. I no. definitely knew they were having sex." A hundred percent. Like actually, they got away with so even the incest is still implied mm-hmm. like maybe their minds just weren't like like that back then to assume but like it's so it's you know something is off and i feel like they knew exactly what they were doing yeah i feel like maybe there was like so much in that novel that when they stripped things back in the different drafts like maybe it was a lot better than those early drafts, but still a lot of it got through <laughs> yeah like just knowing kind of what we know about the the awful things that happen within families these days it's like it's to see that uh, Dr. Tower's wife and now daughter, who he's taken out of school, are, like, fucked up at home, like, clearly yeah. something is happening. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, maybe that wasn't obvious back in 1942, but, yeah, it's there. Yeah. It's there. And, again, whether it was intentional or not for that to come through, I think it's – but, yeah, this is – yeah, I use that melodrama on steroids. It is – it's you, – you, you, keep, you keep looking, and it's – it's like the turns that this movie kept taking i was literally shocked when things were happening because i was just like what like how is this where we're at right now in this movie right it was insane like like i was laughing out loud at this movie like throughout it which again is why i don't think i enjoyed it the way that the creators wanted me to enjoy it but i did Mm -hmm. really enjoy it so yeah yeah again you're probably supposed to be the drama of the century but it at this point it plays like a good lifetime movie it's it's it is so over the top like every horrible thing that could happen to these people happened happened. (laughs) Mm -hmm. including Devin kind of gave away a big plot point with the sadistic doctor but it's insane everybody's read reagan's autobiography so they know oh yeah true 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 by the way his hair did not change from 1942 to 19 his whole face he looked the same he did honestly i'll just say he he worked that haircut and kept it yes he did but uh also not a great actor. I just want to point yeah, that out. Yeah, when looking not at good. him, it's like, he becomes president? It's crazy. <sighs> yeah. It's amazing how the voting power of American citizens works. But mm-hmm. moving on. Okay. Oh, from the movie? Oh, did you Oh, you wanted to stop talking about Reagan? Yeah. I just okay. Said, I just said from Reagan. <laughs> good. That's uh, fine. I, I could say a lot about I Reagan. I want to say, like, I don't know I don't know the actor's name, but the, the kid actor who played young Paris... Yeah. Fantastic. In fact, all the kids were good, but Paris was featured more than others. I honestly thought it drew me into the movie immediately. This kid was great. And I thought they, they cast, uh, was it Robert, Cum- not Robert Cummings. Yeah, Robert Cummings, who plays Paris Mitchell, yeah. uh, older Paris Mitchell. I thought he was honestly excellent, too. I honestly thought the cast, the casting was pretty great in this movie. The cast was oh, good. And, and uh, by the way, Claude Rains as Alex, as do- the Dr. Tower, I thought was yeah. a really nice touch. He was good. Who, who again, another Casablanca connection. She is filled with Casablanca connections. And Anne Sheridan was very good as well. Yes, yeah, she Randy. was. It was Randy. I really liked the character of Randy, honestly. Yeah, I liked her a lot. She was a really interesting character, honestly. Yeah. Stood by her man. But yeah, if you just want to like, honestly, this is one of the movies I would highly recommend from this year. It is, again, if you love good melodrama, this is yeah. not at all. The, I mean, like, I can't even... There can't be a more melodramatic film than this. There I really just can't so. be. I will be surprised if I see another, at least in the next two decades. Right. Yeah. Oh, it is something to behold, guys. Did it make the uh, AFI's inspirations? It sure didn't. Oh, okay. (laughs) 
Uh, has a Rotten Tomatoes audience score of 78% and critics score of 100%. Hell no, yeah, critics. <laughs> no critics consensus. I'm going to guess that was a limited amount of reviews. Um, the box office made $5 million. It was nominated for three Oscars, one zero, and has not been named to any notable lists. Unfortunately, okay. they need to make a list of best melodramas, and then it would be at the top. I find it very odd. I feel like I know what movie we're going to talk about next. Mm-hmm. But why are you sitting on this one for so long? I just copy and paste them in the order that they are listed, and so this is just the order we're going in. This is the way Wikipedia chose to list the nominees. I just work right from the bottom up. <laughs> okay, gotcha. Uh, I didn't really plan it in order. All right. So our next movie is The 49th Parallel. It sure is. Uh, directed by Michael Powell. A, a World War II U-boat crew is stranded in northern Canada. To avoid internment, they must make their way to the border and get into the still-neutral U.S., the mightiest manhunt that ever swept the screen. Oh, that's good. I like that one. Yeah. All right. Some facts. The British Ministry of Information approached Michael Powell to make a propaganda film for them, suggesting he make, quote, a film about minesweeping. Instead, Powell decided to make a film to help sway opinion in the then neutral United States. Said Powell, quote, I hope it might scare the pants off the Americans and thus bring them into the war. Screenwriter Emmerich Pressburger remarked, Goebbels considered himself an expert on propaganda, but I thought I'd show him a thing or two. They were never to know if it would have worked. After persuading the British and Canadian governments, Powell started location filming in 1940, and by the time the film appeared in March 1942, the United States had been in the war for several months. Oh, okay. Uh, notable crew members include David Lean as the editor. Really? I saw his name come up like on the thing, but I was like, that's probably like a different David Lean. That's interesting. But it wasn't. <laughs> Uh, the film was picked up by Columbia Pictures for a 1942 American release and retitled The Invaders. American censors cut 19 minutes from the film, including the speech by the fanatical Nazi commander who claims that Eskimos are, quote, sub-apes like Negroes only one step above the Jews, which was removed to avoid offending segregationists in the American South. We didn't see that cut. Or we saw that cut. Though, yeah, right? we saw the cut with okay, that Okay, I was going to say, I do not remember that. Wait, we saw the cut with that one? Yeah, he says that. When? When they're in the little hut with the after they like kill that Eskimo. I'm sorry, First Peoples. And, um... Oh, are you? I'm going to say... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> might have been shutting my eyes and concentrating on something I'm else for a minute. Resting a little bit, turning yeah. that part. Guys, there's something, you know... He does say it. We, we saw the version where he says it. And I, but I just think it's crazy that they, like, literally didn't want to offend the segregationists by, like, making them sound like Nazis, that they cut that out of the film. Yeah. That's crazy. That's America. That's... <sighs> Gosh. I'm just, like, honestly... Sorry. I, I admittedly did doze off for a minute during this movie, which... So I don't want to, like, say a lot about it, honestly, in my opinion, because I, I, I did sleep through quite a bit of this movie. News. I didn't know you slept through that much, but okay. <laughs> oh yeah, I just I was, we went from one thing to like what happened. I don't even know. Um, but wow. Okay, sorry. I feel I feel that's that's a lot. That's a lot. That line or yeah. just yeah like, yeah yeah. Um, I love the setup for this movie. I love the premise. Uh, the first kind of the first settlement they come across, the town they're supposed to take the port of. Uh, Lawrence Olivier plays Johnny the Trapper. And honestly, is gives like a hundred and twenty five percent. He I, is chewing up that scenery. And I, yeah, and I know that's not a that's not a number you agree with because it's impossible. Yeah, it's not real. But he is so extra, and it's it's honestly so fun to watch. And when they leave, and he never, I'm like honestly sad. I thought he might be throughout the whole movie, but 
when we discover like what this movie is, it's actually they move from like settlement to settlement. They come across all new characters in different situations. Yeah. Uh, which is actually a really interesting premise. Um, but yeah, but nothing kind of tops for me that first that first 20, 25 minutes. Yeah, the the beginning is definitely the strongest part. I think. Yeah, and I mean in the next scene when they come across the like uh, I don't want to say cult because it's not a cult. They're like the a commune. Commune. Thank you. The commune. That was that stuff was wonderful too. Mm-hmm. I really do love. It. I don't know if it topped the first part, but then it yeah from there on I just kind of thought it I, got weaker and weaker as it went on. It went weaker, but then I would say like the final thing when he's on the train I thought was really oh, strong yeah. too. Like the very end. I do I agree think with it's that. Really good. I do agree with that as well. I agree with what you're saying though. I think it's such an interesting concept and like. It's very, like, anti-Hollywood, which makes sense since it was a British-Canadian production, because the story follows the villain. You know, we're following yeah. the, these Nazis throughout Canada as they're trying to get to the U.S., and they're, like, losing Nazis as they go. But, like, it's just so – it's just such an interesting take to have them be the person people that we're following and then come across all these Canadians who – for the most part are very nice because they're Canadian and um and it's just their interactions and the way that they deal with them is just very very interesting I also find it interesting again because this isn't a Hollywood film that they have a commune in this movie where they basically explain how communism works and how great it is (laughs) I was like I'm sorry this movie came out in 1942 but um but they were also in the fort. Like when we joined World War II, we were very like, "Oh, communism is not bad because we were allies with Russia." So we were like, "It's not. It's fine, guys. Don't worry. No, it's right. fine." But anyway, how the tides change. Sure, but um, but yeah, it's uh, I thought it was really good. I thought it was really interesting, enjoyable. I thought it moved pretty quickly, which a lot of times these movies from the forties are paced pretty slow. Yeah. But I thought this one, I thought it, I honestly felt it felt a lot more modern than a lot of other movies from this yeah, time Yeah, I would agree. I, I honestly find it very unfortunate that I fell asleep, just had maybe a long day or whatever yeah. it was. Um, it happens. We have to binge all these movies, guys. But uh, I do feel bad about it. So I don't want to like test the strength or say it's great or say it's not good or whatever. But um, I really did like at, like everything I saw. Again, probably only missed like 20% of the movie. But yeah. um, the only other Michael Powell movie I had seen um, was uh, uh, Peeping Tom. Which oh, was yeah. much later in his career, which I absolutely love. Um, I fell I asleep during that movie. Yes, you did. Yeah. <laughs> but in my defense, we were in Paris and we'd been going a lot hard every day. And I was in a dark theater. And so I fell asleep. Yeah. I mean, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's completely fair. Uh, but, um, but yeah, I, I mean, I could tell his talent immediately. I do love the fact that David Lean was an editor on it. Mm-hmm. That's really cool. Yeah. That's really cool. Anyway. Uh, the structure is really interesting and 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 really kind of is really unique. Yeah, it feels fresh even today. Still, like there yeah. just aren't a lot of movies that would follow villains like yeah, that. Yeah, and it takes an interesting and it doesn't make too, them or... symph- sympathetic in any way, really. The Nazis? Yeah. Mm. You don't think they're sympathetic? You think they are sympathetic? I think they do get some sympathy. Well, like the but one guy. But I think guy, it's sure. going to show that. I think it's going to show like what's happening though. Like what's literally yeah. happening in Europe where there's this crazy ass leader taking a whole country of not all terrible people. Right. Cause that's just a fact. But then, you know what I mean? And then again, in this movie, this U-boat captain is the terrible person. Yeah. And there's some terrible, there's some terrible apples, you know, mm-hmm. but not everybody is, is bad. In fact, they, they, they see, they see what it's like to not be German for a sec or to not be, you know, current uh, Nazi. Mm-hmm. Um, and they try to leave that's true you know so it's like i don't know i thought that was kind of an interesting take too 
That's true. And it it is rare. Like in a Hollywood film, I don't think you would have gotten something like no. that probably. No, they would have all been... Awful. Yeah. Which, yeah. Especially like during the war. Yeah, and I get that. I mean, I do. I 100% get that. I, yeah. I thought it was interesting kind of from that perspective though to already show that, you know what, like when... I don't think they were saying specifically for Germany. They were just describing anybody at war. Like yeah. not everybody is terrible. A lot of people are just doing what they have to do for. Yeah, I mean, most people like don't really have a choice in what they're exactly. doing. Exactly. All right, you want to know some stats about it? Yeah. It has a Rotten Tomatoes audience score of seventy-five percent and a critic score of ninety-two percent, but no critics consensus. The box office in the U.S. it made five million dollars. It was nominated for three Oscars and won one for best story is different from best screenplay but don't ask me how and as far as its legacy the british film institute ranked the film as the 63rd most popular film with british audiences based on cinema attendance of 9.3 million in the uk awesome all right you ready to talk about the best picture winner mrs miniver i sure am Devin. uh written by again like the same team i mentioned before is random harvest uh based on a book by jan struther Directed by William Wyler. The Minivers, an English middle-class family, experienced life in the first months of World War II. Miss Miniver is more than a picture. It's dramatic. It's tender. It's human. It's real. (laughs) All right. Well, how can you argue with that? (laughs) So this was the first film with a plot centered on World War II to win an Oscar for Best Picture. It's also the first film to receive five acting nominations at the Academy Awards. The film went into pre-production in the autumn of 1940 when the United States was still a neutral country. The script was written over many months, and during that time, the United States moved closer to war. As a result, scenes were rewritten to reflect the increasingly pro-British and anti-German outlook of Americans. In particular, the scene in which Mrs. Miniver confronts a downed German flyer in her gardens was made more and more confrontational with each new version of the script. It was initially filmed before the December 1941 attack on Pearl Harbor, which brought the United States into the war. And following the attack, the scene was filmed again to reflect the tough new spirit of a nation at war. Hmm. The key difference was that in the new version of the scene, Mrs. Miniver was allowed to slap the flyer across the face. And the film was released four months later. Wow. Uh, the director wrote and rewrote the key sermon the night before the sequence was to be shot. Hmm. The speech, quote, made such an impact that it was used in essence by President Roosevelt as a morale builder and part of it was the basis for leaflets printed in various languages and dropped over enemy and occupied territory. Roosevelt ordered it rushed to theaters for propaganda purposes, and the sermon dialogue was printed in both Time and Look magazines. Wow. That's actually fascinating. Yeah. Historian Tony Jute says the film is a very English tale of domestic fortitude and endurance of middle-class reticence and perseverance set symptomatically around the disaster at Dunkirk, where all these qualities were taken to be the most on display. It was a pure product of Hollywood, yet for the English generation that saw that saw it, the film would long remain the truest representation of national memory and self-image. In 1944, American rose grower Jackson and Perkins introduced Rosa Mrs. Miniver, a medium-red hybrid tea rose named after Mr. Bollard's rose, winning rose in the film. Over time, the rose was lost to cultivation, but in 2015, one remaining plant was located in a German garden by Orlando Murren, a gardener in Exeter, UK. In 2016, it was successfully propagated by St. Bridget's Nurseries in Exeter and returned to commerce in 1917. And here's my favorite person to get a poll quote from. Joseph Goebbels, minister of Nazi (laughs) propaganda, wrote, quote, 
Mrs. Miniver shows the density of a family during the current war and its refined, powerful, propagandistic tendency has up to now been only dreamed of. There's not a single angry word spoken against Germany. Nevertheless, the anti-German tendency is perfectly accomplished. Gerbils gives it two thumbs up. Wait, like, what? <laughs> he was just saying it's a really great piece of propaganda and he would know. <laughs> Damn. I just love when I can get quotes with Joseph Girls liking this movie. That is insane, Dan. That is insane. Anyway, I'll give you a break from talking because that was a lot. I know. Don't know if we needed the rose story in there, honestly. I thought that was cool. There really is a Mrs. Miniver rose. Yeah, but again, maybe, I guarantee anybody listening to this has not seen it. So they have no attachment to this rose yet. I bet people have seen it. Okay. Well, if you haven't, you should. Because this is honestly a damn fine movie in my eyes. You and Joseph Goebbels agree. <laughs> Stop. This is the one thing we agree on, okay? Um, and I do, I, I obviously see the propaganda in it. I do. Yeah. But, but knowing the historical context, it's like, well, fuck yeah. They hid propaganda in like a really good movie. Like obviously this movie, I came out at a time where it is propaganda. You know what yeah. I mean? But um, if it came out, if it came out in 1930, I think it'd be just as good in my opinion. Um. Yeah, Greer Garson returns to deliver an amazing performance. And again, I, I, I know she was good in Random Harvest, but she's great here as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and man, I just, I really liked the characters. I really enjoyed the story. I liked the things it had to say. Um, man, maybe I should have buried the lead a little bit more, but like, <laughs> I, I really did enjoy my time here. Um I thought it was honestly more of a comment too, like again on America's stance, like, uh, mm-hmm. and I see that that was true. I see, you know, like once things turned around, obviously, it it worked into that effect here. Um, but yeah, sorry, I'm, I don't know why I can't talk right now. Maybe I can react on some things you say. Sure. No, I think you're. I think you're definitely right. I think it was. You know, it's set in England, but it was def. This was definitely this wasn't a British production. This was a Hollywood. It's film. about doing the right thing. Yeah, and I think it was very much trying to like reach American audiences and being like, "This is how we're going to handle yeah. this too." Like, we are just gonna like buckle down and deal well, with it and like do what we have to do because of our, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting too because I mean, as as most people know, like we were we were very isolationist before uh, mm-hmm. Pearl Harbor, and especially in our stance in, in joining World War Two. Um, but, and that's how this movie starts. This movie starts with these people that they're, they're celebrating things like buying a new car and, and buying this hat that I just couldn't get out of my mind. Right. Right. But then once the war starts, everything turns and they're about to, they're ready to do anything and everything for their country. Mm-hmm. Um, which again, why it works is propaganda. Sure. But it's also like I with them and I get it. And I mean like Ms. Miniver is not doing much besides like rationing or whatever else, but like. Mr. Miniver is out there, you know, uh, doing watches. Their son joins the Royal Air Force. Mm-hmm. You know, everyone. Mr. Miniver goes to Dunkirk and helps. Yeah, he goes. Yeah, soldiers. right. He goes to Dunkirk, like famous the boat scene in, in the movie from a couple years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, he's he's one of those people. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Sorry, I lost my thought. But oh, sorry. But yeah, I think it works on like again what we need to do to survive because this is obvious. I mean, this is the great war. This is like there is there is a pure evil in this circumstance you know what i mean this is not a you disagree no i do agree i just think in 1942 we didn't know that no i yeah no i agree 
You know what I mean? We That's didn't true. we didn't know the atrocities of what was happening in Germany until we liberated Germany. So, it, I mean, and I don't disagree. I think that it is. But we, I think it was like for from the American point, we still have to stand with our brothers in Britain. Yeah. And do everything. I mean, they're invading at this point. You know what I mean? It's just like, yeah. No. No, I agree. I think that it is. It's a very well done propaganda film because. <laughs> like Gerbil says they don't like it's not like over the top like talking about how awful Germans are but it's just like in showing what these everyday citizens not soldiers just everyday people are going through shows that the Germans are bad mm-hmm. even though I mean like England was also bombing Germany and, and I think pretty sure citizens died there too but like you know what I mean so like things were happening on both sides but I do think it works in that way and it does you know like give you this sense of pride and want to fight for your country and that sort of thing. So I think it succeeds in what I was trying to do. Right. And it, and it feels so, you know, they step up almost immediately and it feels so like, so like it would almost look surprising if we obviously didn't just get out of world war one. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Everybody knows the terrors of war at this point. You know what yeah. I mean? And the fact that they're still, they're ready to go at it again and do what's right is, mm-hmm. is interesting. Yeah. And I will say, too, I think that, like, overall this year, this crop of nominees is a lot stronger than other other decade, other years within this decade, within the 40s. And I feel like part of it is, like, what we were saying is that you have to look at these films differently because in the studio system, they weren't really trying to create art. They were just trying to create things that people would enjoy in entertainment. But I think in a lot of these cases with these movies, they were trying for something else. They were trying... So you use these movies to motivate American citizens. And so I think because they had something besides just entertainment motivating these films, I do think that's why they're stronger and they hold up a little better than, than others from the forties. No, I mean, absolutely. The fact that they can make something entertaining that is also propaganda in itself. Yeah. Is art. Um, and realizing too, like I'm talking about this, like war, I'm so like positive about world war two or whatever. I don't know, but it like really is just thinking about it. It's like the last war we can, we can truly romanticize. Like, yes, um, that's why there's still so many movies about World War II. It's very, it's a very clear it's, it's, black and white, exactly, good and evil exactly. type thing. Because um, I, I say that like, oh, when you stand up and do what's right, but I'm not talking about like, I don't think what we did in Vietnam was right. I don't think right. what we did in Korea was right. I don't think what we did in in, in Iraq was right. You know, yeah. Like I'm not trying to say you know that. I just, I don't know. It obviously was at this time, especially in context, especially looking back 2020. Um, yeah, sorry. I just wanted to clear that up. I just I don't think like going to war is right. Right. I just mean like in this circumstance, it, I know it was. Right. Right. And I do think like even if you you know are anti-war completely and everything, like I think this Mrs. Miniver works in a way too because because it's not really about war. It's about how the way that everyday people react to their country being at war. Yeah. Makes it more powerful too because you know there's plenty of war movies with men you know i mean the fact that this is a movie that centers on a woman for the most part multiple women i think that that yeah, yeah. that's important too because i mean obviously women's lives were affected by this too and uh, yeah 100 percent. they were asked to sacrifice a lot so mm-hmm. yeah it was a good movie yeah it feels so weird like respecting the nationalist attitude of this movie and disagreeing with a nationalist like a nationalist attitude today yeah, it is like a weird time to be watching all I these like divided. extremely patriotic movies, yeah. but um But yeah, I mean like I don't know, propaganda still exists today too. Like we're 
when we're not watching these films, we are currently watching Band of Brothers, which um, I've never seen before. Kyle has. And you like it came out like right after 9-11, right? Yeah. And so I think that... Like two episodes aired and then 9-11 happened or something. Yeah. And I wonder if that has a lot to do with the way people remember how great that show being. I feel like that no, did I, a, you know, people were very I patriotic since 9-11. I, agree. I think it would have got a lot of viewers just being on HBO, being cinematic. I, I, I do. I think it would have got a lot of viewers regardless, but mm-hmm. yeah, would it be what it's considered today without that extremely patriotic attitude? I don't think so. Right. So it's just interesting. Yeah, for sure. The more things change, yeah. the more they stay the same. Alrighty. So Mrs. Miniver has a Rotten Tomatoes audience score of 85% and a critic score of 93%. The critic's consensus reads, An excessively sentimental piece of propaganda, Mrs. Miniver nonetheless succeeds due largely to Greer Garson's powerful performance. At the box office made $8.9 million. And like we said, it was the number one film of the year. At the Oscars, it was nominated for 12 Oscars and won the six. It won Picture, Director, Actress, Supporting Actress, Screenplay, and Cinematography, Black and White. Wow. As far as its legacy, the American Film Institute, on their list of 100 cheers, ranked it at number 40, and it was preserved in the National Film Registry in 2009. Awesome. Wow. Later than... uh... Magnificent Amber. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, I feel like like that is just people having a bias, like, oh, Orson Welles is a better... You know what I mean? Than this piece of propaganda or whatever. That's true. But I mean, if I had to choose one to watch, I'd watch Mrs. Miniver over <laughs> Magnificent Amber <Anderson's. laughs> But if we had to choose one to rewatch again, it would definitely be King's, King's Row. Row yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Time for the question of the podcast. Kyle, did yeah. the Academy get it right? I really do think so this year. Okay. I do. I think Miss Miniver was the strong, like, I don't know what, you know, I don't know. It had a lot of effects on me, but I do think it was the strongest. Also melodramatic. Like, oh, yeah. certainly some good well, melodrama sure, yeah. in it, but I mean, not. Not King's Row melodrama. But, <laughs> Nothing is as well as King's uh, But I, I do truly think as far as like looking in the context of the Oscars and uh, history and I, I get it. And mm-hmm. I just I do say I do think this deserves the, 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 the statue on this one. Sure. I don't I'm not like angry about Mrs. Minerva having it. If I had to choose a propaganda film from this year, I would probably go with 49th Parallel. But because um, I just think that was like a more interesting take on it than mm-hmm. this. But I still really liked Mrs. Minerva and I'm fine with it winning I, I like your choice there i would say miss miniver did more things right than 49th parallel but yeah i mean i i see what you're saying i do i truly do yeah all right well that is that that is our episode um since there were so many nominees for this we're not going to do a supplemental for 1943 so instead next week we'll be coming at you with um 1993 oscar nominees cool and as always, we came in listening to the best song winner, which was White Christmas from Holiday Inn. And nothing would ever be better than that song. So we're going to go out <laughs> listening to it because Bing Crosby singing White Christmas is a national treasure. And we should all enjoy it. Amen. All right. Bye. Just like the ones I used to know. Where the treetops glisten. Where the treetops glisten And children listen And children listen